Well, welcome to another week of This Week in Government Enforcement. Jerome Thomas, as always, joined by my co-host, Tom Firestone. Got a special guest here today, um, the newest member of the group, uh, Jeff Martino. Um, he uh, he, he uh, has joined us uh, from, uh, from, from the government, and, and he's going to uh, share with us uh, some great perspective here today on the Biden executive order on antitrust enforcement. It's something that Tom and I have been talking about a lot recently, and we're just A, happy to have you at the firm with us, Jeff, but also B, happy to have you on the show. So welcome to the firm. Welcome to This Week in Government Enforcement. Thank you very much. Awesome. It's, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to talking about the executive order. Excellent. I'm going to talk about uh, a, a new SEC enforcement matter, uh, an accounting fraud or, or accounting um, disclosure and uh, a restatement case that has some interesting wrinkles from a from kind of a, a plumbing, from an accounting plumbing standpoint that I think you all out there um, would, would be interested in hearing. And Tom is going to bring us home talking about the, uh, the Barrick indictment. So I guess without further ado, Tom, I'm going to just hand it over to you and you can fire away at Jeff. Great. Thanks, Jerome. Jeff, Jeff, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. You've been at the firm all of two weeks now, and uh, we didn't take long to find you and grab you to put you on this. And your arrival could not be more timely. What with the President Biden's executive order on, I think it's called the executive order on promoting competition in the American economy. As Jerome mentioned, you were with the government for many years doing antitrust enforcement as well as ordinary criminal enforcement. You were the head of the New York office of the antitrust division of DOJ. So you've really seen these issues from a number of perspectives. And I guess the first question for those of us who are not specialists in antitrust law and competition law, what does this order really mean? I mean, I, I read it, but it's extremely detailed. I think by one count it has 72 directives to more than 12 different federal agencies. It covers every industry under the sun. There's agriculture in there, there's IT in there, there's prescription drug, drugs, there's telecom, there's even a section in there about pricing of hearing aids. So this really gets down to a granular, granular level of detail in the in its directive to a variety of um, government agencies. So how can you distill this for us? I mean, what are the main takeaways from this executive order that everyone should know if they're not specialists in the particular industries that are affected? Yeah, and, and Tom, thanks also again for having me. I, yeah, I was at DOJ for over uh, or nearly 20 years in various roles, and including, as you mentioned, as head of the New York office, the antitrust division. They were really for, uh, focused on criminal antitrust prosecutions. I left back in 2019 and joined Baker, another Baker, I'll just put it, I'll just say that before coming over here. And so I've seen antitrust enforcement, not only from the DOJ side, but also from private practice side and, and hope to bring that experience, obviously here to Baker McKenzie's really fantastic global team. So at a high level, the order sets competition law priorities for the Federal Trade Commission primarily, but also the Department of Justice and as you said, more than a dozen other federal agencies who are all coordinated through a White House Competition Council. Um, so it's, this is you know, gonna be reported back up and, and coordinated through the White House. 
And essentially it mandates more aggressive merger enforcement by the antitrust agencies to address the market power of very large companies. We're talking the large tech companies and it recommends other regulatory and legislative changes to promote competition in the American economy. Now, as you, you mentioned a few uh, of the sectors that it really focuses on and, and I'll highlight technology, healthcare and life sciences, banking and finance, transportation, agricultural, intellectual property, defense, and real estate. But, but in addition to all of those, the order, I think, has an interesting focus on labor markets, which really touches upon any industry and sector, right? So actually, you know, it, it's interesting with uh, President Biden, when he was, when he was Vice President Biden, uh, he had also a very strong push and, and put a lot of attention on labor markets. And it's back in 2016 that he had this request go out to, to all the federal agencies. And then from that request to focus on labor markets, the FTC and DOJ came together to put together antitrust guidance for the labor markets, where DOJ alerted everybody for the first time that naked wage fixing and no poaching agreements could be prosecuted criminally, and that employers competing to hire or retain the same employees are competitors from an antitrust perspective. And, and so while a lot of the focus on, on labor is just you know, really a re-emphasis on those markets because Biden has had this agenda uh, since he, he was vice president. So what do you think, I mean, how new is this? I mean, one of the terms that's being used in connection with this order is that it's you know, endorsing a quote, whole of government approach to competition. And I read that and I thought, didn't we always have a whole of government approach? I and mean, we had a variety of agencies, uh, FTC, you know, in the lead, but a variety of agencies, including your old agency, DOJ, that were focused on promoting competition. Is this really new or is it just simply taking a lot of things that were already being done and putting them together in one document and presenting it as some great new approach to competition? You know, I think a lot of it was already being done um, sector by sector. For example, DOJ had an MOU with the SEC that came out uh, just a couple of years ago, and they had done those one-offs with different agencies. But I think what um, AG Garland it, it will do is take a more proactive approach and identify those specific agencies that are laid out in the executive order, and DOJ will enter MOUs with them. And in fact, two days after the order came out, the division entered uh, an MOU with the Federal Maritime Commission um, for the first time. So I think you're gonna see a mo more of those understandings between the agencies and the, and the other regulatory bodies come into play. And it's really, you know, these documents are very short, they're two pages. And they basically say, is we're gonna share information and we're gonna have some conversations quarterly or yearly. And based on your experience at DOJ, was there a lack of coordination with the other agencies? I mean. It seemed to the matters I had when I was a prosecutor and also on the defense side, DOJ and FTC shared pretty well in cases where there was some overlap. Um, do you think that there more coordination is, I mean, coordination is the sort of thing that's hard to ever be against. You know, everybody makes recommendations. We need more coordination. How much was enforcement inhibited by a lack of effective, effective coordination in your experience? You know, it, it's hard. It's hard to tell. I mean, I think there are, were agencies out there where there wasn't a lot of interaction prior to an investigation starting, and then that interaction kind of developed during the course of investigations, whether it be transportation, defense. But here, I think they're what they try and will, uh, 
what they're really trying to do is is create that um, that 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 platform, create that mechanism for sharing of information uh, to occur much earlier, and then by those conversations happening earlier, DOJ and the FTC will be able to engage and identify where there are some competition issues that maybe the uh, the other agencies had not identified previously. That makes sense. And where do you think the most uh, we'll see the most enforcement actions coming out of this, both in terms of agencies, obviously DOJ, FTC, you know, our prime candidates for that, but also in terms of industry. Is it going to be big tech like everyone expects? Is it going to be pharma and prescription drugs? Is it going to be agriculture, which, as I mentioned, is also um, get some play in the executive order? What would be your prediction? Well, from from what we've seen so far from, from DOJ, and, and again, here the focus on labor markets, I think the attention for, for criminal enforcement actions is going to be uh, really focused on those wage fixing uh, and non-solicitation, no poach cases, as, as they've deemed them. There's been just this past year, and they've it, straddled the Trump administration as, as Biden has come on, there's been four indictments, and they've all been in the healthcare space which you know, I think is important to uh, point out, healthcare staffing companies. But the investigations are certainly not limited to healthcare. Uh, I know they're in defense, they're also in ad tech and, and span many industries. Uh, there's uh, also in agriculture and food. So I think that, that really that focus on labor cuts across industries and DOJ has put that as one of its highest priorities to pursue those cases. Yeah, your colleague Creighton Mason was on our show a few weeks ago talking exactly about this, about the no poaching um, cases and the tendency to enforce in that area. And finally, um, Baker McKenzie, as you know, prides itself on being an international firm. We're all over the world. I don't think I have any cases that do not cross borders in some way. That's a lot of our work here. What would you say about the international effects of this? Are we going to see more coordination between DOJ and foreign competition authorities as a result of this? DOJ and the FTC have very good relations with uh, foreign competition agencies. I think what's to be determined is uh, there is is basically a big ask by, by the White House and Congress to change laws, right? And it just depends on if we're gonna go closer to the European model, which not only looks at monopolies, but whether firms can have it dominant positions and then take mm. advantage of that. But that's all legislation that's still pending. So, you know, we'll, we'll continue to monitor that for, the, for our clients and, and keep everybody posted on, on that because to the extent we do go closer to the European model, the collaboration will have to become uh, even more so. Yeah, I worked, I worked in, as we've discussed, I worked in Russia at the embassy for a number of years, and our best partner among Russian enforcement agencies was not the general prosecutor's office, not the drug agency. It was actually the federal anti-monopoly service, which was quite aggressive. But you mentioned these abusive dominant position cases. We saw that all the time in Russia, and that is a slippery slope, to say the least, because you could have a dominant position by virtue of producing better products. And one question, right. one issue we ran into there was, how do you define the relevant market? They would define the market very narrowly to say that a company that produced a particular product had a dominant position within the market for that particular product, which of course it did because it's its own product. So that is a fascinating issue that I saw at that level. And as this moves forward, as if we move forward to the European model, as you suggest, that will, there will definitely be some issues in that area. 
Yeah, no, I, I think that that's that's right. And you pointed on one of the one of the main question that's going to be ha- answered as they debate these uh, these legislative proposals in Congress is you know can you how do you draw the line? And I think many people will will consider well let's see what our current laws can do with um, as as there's major cases out there right now with the FTC and DO, and DOJ into you know the the big tech markets. This is Jeff. Thanks so much. A fascinating discussion, an incredibly timely discussion. And I know we will be having you back as this develops. Jerome, over to you. Thanks, Tom. And Jeff, thank you. Fabulous, interesting stuff. Appreciate it, man. So I want to talk briefly about a new settled uh, accounting and financial reporting uh, controls case uh, brought administratively by the SEC last week involving a multi-year restatement of financials. So the case was brought against Tandy Leather Factory Incorporated and its chief executive officer, Shannon Green. Um, I'm going to try and stay out of a lot of like the technical legal weeds um, as much as possible here and just highlight a couple things that I think are important for you all to know. So to me, the case highlights a few things. Um, one, the danger in relying upon manual processes to address deficiencies in automated accounting systems. Um, you'll see what I'm talking about when we get into a little bit of the facts. Also the danger in relying upon older and therefore potentially more likely to be obsolete or limited accounting software or accounting services. And finally, the need to have properly trained employees involved on the front end of the accounting entry process. So in short here, The SEC alleged that Tandy's inventory tracking system failed to properly maintain um, the historical cost basis for individual inventory items, specifically that every time the company inputted a new cost basis or a new price for inventory that it had purchased, that accounting system went back and changed the historical cost for all earlier purchases. And for those who are accountants or those who even took tax law in law school, it it basically changed the cost basis every time a new inventory was purchased at a different price, which therefore prevented the company from uh, accounting for inventory according to the company's um, stated first in, first out, or FIFO (laughs) inventory accounting methodology that it disclosed in its public reports. Uh, The SEC said as a result of that, the company failed to design and maintain a system of internal accounting control sufficient to design um, or sufficient to ensure that transactions were recorded in conformity with GAAP, and that also Tandy failed to design, maintain, and evaluate its disclosure controls and procedures and internal controls over financial reporting, and that the CEO uh, or the former CEO failed to properly assess and evaluate the company's effectiveness uh, uh, for disclosure controls and procedures and internal controls over financial reporting. Um, so what happened here is that the SEC said that, um, that, that the company's chief executive officer and others knew that the company's information systems did not maintain inventory valuations consistent with uh, FIFO methodology. Um, but in order to fix that, they relied on a, a manual process. Um, uh, specifically, uh, the, the company uh, and, and its inventory purchasers were supposed to track inventory for all SKUs 
across the company stores domestically in inventory and change the price in inventory only after the company stores sold inventory through the existing sold through the existing inventory. So essentially the what I'm reading it as track when the old inventory that's priced at the old price leaves and then you go in and update the inventory in the system. Again, um, it seems very cumbersome and frankly difficult to actually um, do in practice. And I think that's part of what drove the SEC um, to, to look at this case. Um, the SEC said that the, 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 the former CEO and others didn't take uh, steps to properly ensure that the implementation of this manual process was actually moving forward. And that resulted in inventory valuations being inaccurate which in turn impacted the, the company's calculations for inventory net income, gross profit for quarterly and annual reporting periods from 2017 uh, up until you know, more recent vintage. Um, and so what the SEC is, is saying here is that, you know, um, specifically with respect to internal controls over financial reporting, right? We've spoken a lot about uh, disclosure controls and procedures, um, usually in the context of cyber cases. Um, but we've also uh, talked a lot about internal controls and books and records charges. All of those are in here. What I wanted to do real quickly is, is just highlight an internal controls over financial reporting case. And so um, what, uh, what, uh, uh, what the securities laws require is that management has to provide in an annual report uh, a report its assessments of the effectiveness of its internal controls over financial reporting and any material weaknesses in internal controls over reporting. Um, under uh, regulation, SK, a regulation under the securities laws, management's not permitted to conclude that internal controls over financial reporting is effective if there's one or more material weaknesses in the company's you know, ICFR. And what the SEC did is they basically said, well, the company did not disclose that there were any material weaknesses in its internal controls over financial reporting. But upon discovering this in 2019, when the audit committee for the company conducted an investigation, it identified a number of material weaknesses in internal controls over financial reporting that, that were never previously disclosed. So as a result, um, all of these reports in their annual reports and all of the executive certifications made by the CEO relating to material weaknesses were not accurate. Now, it's important to keep in mind that the charges in this case are technical. No fraud charges were brought, not even non-scienter-based fraud. The, 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 but, so this is the SEC bringing technical charges relating to very technical issues in inventory calculation that, that resulted in a restatement of the financial states. Um, so they, they're, they're focusing on a narrow set, frankly, a case that's easier to prove than a fraud-based scienter or fraud-based uh, scienter-based fraud charge or even non-scienter-based um, fraud charges. But what you can see the SEC is doing here is something that we, we, we talk about in different contexts all the time, which is, look, um, you, if you, when you have a system that is supposed to track inventory, you have to actually make sure it's being implemented. And if what you are doing, and it's the same thing, I, I kind of liken this to the, the, the DOJ and the SEC going after 
uh, foreign acquisitions, uh, Tom and Jeff, in FCPA cases, because that's always where it's the integration is where things tend to break down, at least historically, if you read the cases. What the SEC is doing is taking a new spin on this. They're saying, well, and it's interesting, they, they actually mentioned once in the, in the case, but it wasn't in there just for passing reference. It was there for a reason. The SEC said that the company had this system in place since around 2000. Now, to the passing eye, it means nothing. But to people who read these cases for a living, the SEC, I think, is trying to send a message or at least is sending a part of a message, which is, look, if you are relying upon an accounting system that's 21 years old and there is a known gap and, and really kind of a, a gap that should have been closed a long time ago, according to the SEC, and you're employing a manual process to bridge that gap. You actually have to make sure that manual process is being employed. And if you don't, you need to go back and rehash your entire automated system. I think that's really what the SEC is saying here, right? Now, what I wanted to tell everyone about is this, this message, which is, um, you know, oftentimes, you know, this is an IT system question um, that sits in the finance world, but that we now see has real world legal implications. And so lawyers in corporate compliance departments and in the, the general counsel's office and in the securities function of, of public companies need to be aware that the SEC is really sort of digging in to these very specific issues and is saying, look, um, periodically, you have to think about whether your systems, automated or manual, are actually sufficient to value inventory and to report income, profit, et cetera, et cetera. And if they're not, you need to think about whether that's a material weakness that needs to be closed. Um, the SEC brings cases for a reason. And I think that's the message that they're sending here is that older systems, systems that rely upon manual overrides or manual bridging of gaps need to be looked at far more closer than kind of the latest shiny accounting system that is far less likely to have significant known gaps in them. And so when I read the case, I thought it was important. It's, you know, it wasn't a huge settlement um, very technical charges, but again, it's that kind of devil in the detail stuff that I think, you know, folks out there should be aware of because it does point to an SEC initiative. And so Tom, why don't you, uh, why don't you bring us home, man? Great. Thanks, Jerome. Always, always interesting, uh, stuff. And, uh, I don't know many people who get into the details of the SEC and financial regulation the way that you do. And I, I never cease to be impressed by your ability to, uh, to unpack that stuff. So um, thanks. Uh, on to another fascinating development, this really extraordinary indictment of Thomas Barrick, a former, um, former Trump advisor, for acting as an unregistered agent of the government of the United Arab Emirates between 2016 and 2018. This was out of my former uh, U.S. Attorney's Office, the Eastern District of Brooklyn. It's a seven-count indictment that charges Barrick, somebody who worked for him, Matthew Grimes, and then a UAE national, Mr. Al-Shahi, as part of a conspiracy to influence the Trump the Trump campaign and then the Trump presidency, the Trump administration, in their policy towards the UAE. Um, this is one thing I got to point out that's been, I think, mistakenly reported in some of the press, that this is an indictment under Farah, like the uh, Manafort case. It's actually not under Farah. It's under a very closely related statute, 18 U.S.C. 951, which basically criminalizes acting as an agent of a foreign government without registering. If you register under Farah, then you can... Um, 
you have a defense under 951, the elements are a little bit um, are a little bit different. I'll talk about that in a second. It also charges Barrick with um, obstruction of justice and making false statements to law enforcement during an interview um, in connection with this case. So a couple words, uh, who is Barrick? He was, uh, is the executive chairman of a global investment management firm headquartered in LA. Grimes is a, um, one of his uh, employees. And as I say, Al-Shahi is, an, um, is a uh, UAE national who really acted as the intermediary between Barrick and Grimes on the one hand, and the government of the UAE on the other, according to the according to the indictment, Barrick was an advisor to the Trump campaign in 2016. He was the chairman of the presidential inaugural committee um, after the November 2016 election, and then once Trump was actually um, inaugurated, he was an advisor to the Trump administration on Middle East um, issues. And what they're alleged to have done, if you read the indictment, it is extremely detailed about what they're alleged to have done, their communications, and it lays out a pattern of trying to influence the Trump administration policy towards the UAE that is, um, if one accepts the allegations, quite, um, quite um, thorough and, as I say, quite detailed. Um, numerous meetings in which uh, Barrick or Grimes consulted with their, um, consulted through Mr. Al-Shahi uh, with uh, their UAE, um, uh, UAE partners in this scheme about talking points in public press appearances, op-eds that Barrick wrote were apparently edited, were allegedly edited by UAE officials um, on subjects related to the UAE. Uh, it alleges that there was, um, that Barrick basically intervened with Trump to prevent a summit at Camp David uh, relating to a dispute between the UAE and the state of Qatar. Um, there are um, allegations that Barrick put language into Trump's speeches um, about the praising the UAE at the direction of UAE government officials. Um, and it goes on and on like this. There's one point where it talks about, you know, alleges that um, Barrick um, uh, made some press appearance and made some uh, press statements, appeared on some talk shows uh, with talking points supplied to him. And then afterwards he emailed Mr. Al-Shahi wrote in quote, writing quote, I nailed it for the home team, referring to the government of the UAE as the home team. So if one accepts these, uh, now I'm sure Barrick will have very fine lawyers who will try to contextualize all of this and try to explain it. But we, reading the indictment, it is, um, it is uh, quite uh, damning. And of course they will rely on the fact that, you know, Barrick allegedly lied during his inter an interview with the FBI agents to show that he knew that what he was doing was um, improper and illegal. We'll have to see how it all plays out um, in court. And these are, of course, just allegations at this point. A couple of things that I wanted to mention that make this case really, as I say, extraordinary. One is I can't help but notice the irony comparing this indictment with the Mueller report and the allegations of collusion with Russia. Now, if we all remember the Mueller report, they indicted a lot of people for a lot of, um, a lot of bad acts, many of whom were um, convicted. But the evidence of collusion with Russia remained pretty sparse, even at the end of the Mueller investigation. The evidence, again, according to the indictment of collusion with the UAE is extremely um, uh, persuasive, extremely detailed over a protracted period of time. The kind of thing that I think a lot of people were expecting to see with regard to Russia, but never really came out. And here we do see it with regard to the UAE. 
Um, secondly, something else that's extraordinary about this case, Barrick was let out on bail of $250 million. He was arrested in LA to be removed to Brooklyn, New York, and he got out on a bail package of $250 million. I think, I don't know, uh, I can't say for sure, I think that is the largest bail package in the history of the US criminal justice system. Um, the case is also interesting because there are allegations that the prosecutors had this evidence a couple of years ago. And in fact, as I say, it really ends around uh, April 2018 and deliberately did not bring the case while the Trump administration was still in office. Not clear if they didn't try to push it because they knew they would get you know, pushback from superiors in the department or they were getting pushback that was preventing them from uh, bringing the charges or for whatever reason, they just didn't think the case was ready until later. We don't know. Um, one irony of that is if they, if it were, if the case was not brought because of pressure from higher ups in the Trump administration, um, you know, the biggest loser from that is Mr. Barrick himself, because if he had been indicted while Trump was still president, he might have gotten a pardon like several of us, several other um, Trump administration um, officials, advisors. Um, so we'll have to see how it goes out. A couple more technical legal points that are quite interesting about this. One is there's no allegation in the indictment that Barrick was paid for this service. Um, and it doesn't really explain what his motivation was in doing this. And I mentioned that because a lot of times when we have clients coming to us for fair advice, they think if they're not getting paid by the foreign government, then it can't possibly be a FARA violation. Of course it can be because there are all sorts of reasons why somebody might work for a foreign government in an undeclared capacity. So I point that out and I think this, if the case does go to trial, this will probably be one of the issues that the lawyers, that Barrick's lawyers raised. He wasn't even paid for it. We don't even know why he did this. He didn't think he was doing anything wrong. He was trying to, you know, of course, when you're in operating in foreign policy, when you're advising a president, you have to talk to a foreign government. You find out what they're interests are. You balance those interests. That's what diplomacy and foreign policy making are all about. So the fact that he didn't get paid may give them an opportunity to present a defense. Something else I just wanted to point out is that one of the most um, sort of ambiguous aspects of FARA is the so-called commercial exemption, which provides an exemption for bona fide commercial activities on behalf of a foreign principal. Um, there are a lot of exceptions to that. DOJ has been sort of fleshing that out, what that really means basically saying in the FARA context that if you have a legitimate commercial transaction, but you are nevertheless acting for the benefit of a foreign government trying to influence U.S. policy, you don't get the commercial exemption. Um, so that is an issue that's being played out. This, as I say, this indictment was brought not under FARA, under 951, which provides a much broader commercial exemption, um, uh, which is cited in the indictment. I mentioned that just because anyone who reads the indictment when you read the indictment, it says that, you know, uh, and it basically lays out the elements of 951 and says the individual is not acting, a, not executing a legitimate uh, commercial, illegal commercial transaction. Do not fall into the trap of thinking that, well, I'm doing a legal commercial transaction, therefore I don't have to register under FARA. That is not the case. And it is a mis, um, misperception that one may get if you just read the Barrick indictment without the broader context. So anyway, this is going to be an interesting case. We'll have to see how it uh, plays out. We will be following it as it finds its way through the judicial system. With that, back to you, Jerome. Yeah, hey, look, I, we talked about this a ways back. We, this area just seems ripe for the, the kind of uh, sort of user-friendly materials that, that the DOJ put out years ago on the FCA. Um, 
even you talk about, you know, I know this case isn't technically a FARA case, but writ large, it is a FARA case, right? And, and, and I, I think, you know, that, that commercial transaction exception and the exception to that exception that largely swallows it, these are things that are critically important to a whole bunch of interests, whether they be domestic interests or, or foreign interests. And it just seems to me like if this is something that the Department of Justice is going to pursue, and I see no reason why they're not, because foreign policy and, and, and law enforcement are becoming closer and closer as we move through the years. It's something we've been talking about for a while. Um, I, I, I just think it's ripe for some kind of user-friendly layperson's explanation of what the heck fair is. Well, I think we absolutely need that. We've got the advisory opinions, but the advisory opinions are very thin. They're heavily redacted. You can't really tell much from them. Yeah. And I completely agree with you. Almost all of us in the consulting industry in the United States service foreign clients, private and sometimes public, in a variety of contexts. What can you and can't you do yeah. is a very important issue to understand, and it's a blurry one. We have foreign clients all the time. Now, FARA, of course, provides a legal exemption, but the legal exemption is not unlimited either and only applies in certain contexts, not in others. So I think that DOJ would be doing a great service to the world if they're going to aggressively enforce FARA 951, as they are giving every indication they're doing, to simultaneously, as you say, give very detailed guidance, yeah. just like they have done in the FCPA context. Yep. All right. Great stuff. Thanks, Tom. And Jeff, thank you for joining us. We'll have you back as uh, as the executive order gets legs and we see how this thing moves on. OK. Great. Thanks, Jerome. Thanks, Tom. Thanks right, both of you. Gathering crowds takes us away. All right, guys, we're off. Nice job, Jeff. Thanks for uh, yeah. Join him. Yeah, it was great. Great yeah. to be able to work you into this. So, yeah. uh,